we are studying the power of words and the power of speaking and also the danger and the destruction of words. Uh, words have the ability to heal, they have the ability to destroy. And we are bringing in to this room this morning both kinds of impacts. We are bringing the power of words from someone in our life to come in and heal us, restore us, give us strength and courage. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing what a very simple word from a loved one uh, or even from uh, a good-hearted, wise stranger can do. They can set us right again and restore our strength and encourage us. We are also bringing into this room words that have destroyed us, ripped us open, left us bleeding on the inside. And those kinds of words live on. The destruction goes on. And so we are uh, we are bringing both of those impacts into this room this morning. We're also bringing in uh, the fact that we have said and, and spoken both of those kinds of words. We have said things to others that we know have been encouraging and life-giving and nurturing, and then we have said other kinds of things to people that we know have been destructive. And so we want to turn from foolish, destructive talk to wise talk. We want our tongues to be sources of life for the people around us, and that's the subject we've been studying. As we talk about the fruit of wisdom uh, in, in our lives, uh, we are, we've been taken back, really, to the source of where wisdom comes from. The first week we started this study, we just went right back to the beginning, the beginning of knowledge is what? The fear of the Lord. So if we want to learn to speak wisely, we have to cultivate the fear of the Lord in our hearts. And that means cultivating that virtue of learning God's word, taking this in deeply and really grounding our whole heart and mind in our trust for the Lord, that what he has said to us, what he promises to us, is right, true, and absolutely reliable. And so once we have that foundation of trust, once our root system is sinking down into the word of God and we're fearing him and trusting him, then good fruit is going to come from that. Wise speech, wise talking is going to emerge from that in a very natural way. And in a similar way, last week we talked about the fact that God has put guides in our lives, parents, grandparents, teachers, bosses, coaches. All of these people have been put in our lives to guide us, not just in our skills and decision-making, but also in what we say. And so if we want to speak wisely, we also have to speak out of that trust that we have for wise people in our lives. It's not quite right, is it, to, to claim that we trust God, but we don't trust any people. If we're suspicious of all authority, if we're constantly second-guessing everything that we're taught, 
if nobody can really teach us anything, we've got a problem. And we can talk about how we're submitting to the Lord and how much we trust the Lord. We can talk about that till we're blue in the face. But the rubber meets the road when there's a real person in your life who is saying, sit down, open up your ears. I've got some things you need to hear. And when that person starts to talk and we, we trust that person, that's when we're cultivating the kind of soft-heartedness that yields good fruit. And what we say out of that is going to be wiser, truer, and more fruitful uh, in our lives. So we're talking about all of these issues, not from the point of view that if you would just learn a few good phrases and learn how to control your tone of voice and smile more when you talk, that people will like what you say more. I mean, that may be true, it may not be true, but the real issue is, who do you trust? Because what you say comes out of your trust in God and in other people. So we've started with that foundation. Now we're going to turn... We're going to leave the root system and we're going to go up and look at the fruit that is hanging on the tree. When you trust God, what does godly, wise speech look like? uh, How how does that come out practically? It comes out, the scriptures teach, in the form of blessing. You become, in everything that you say, a source of life, nourishment, vitality to the people around you. Now, what's the opposite of blessing? It's curses. The same is true. If our hearts have no fear of God, and if we don't trust Him, and we don't know His Word, then there's really no break on what we say. All kinds of things come out of us. Uh, and, and what comes out of us is really not fit for consumption. It's not going to feed anybody. It's going to poison the people around us, not nourish them. Um, and uh, so this, this contrast that the Scripture is always making between blessing and cursing, between speaking things that are a source of life versus speaking things that are toxic to other people. This contrast is what we're going to take up this morning in a very broad way. And our, our, our text this morning for this is Proverbs 15, verse 4. One verse, two lines, very simple contrast. But there is a whole world in these two lines. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. The words blessing and cursing are not used here. But this is what this verse is describing. A tree of life is a source of blessing. And breaking someone's spirit is a kind of cursing. And so we're going to look at this contrast this morning. We're going to see the impacts of gentleness and perversion in the tongue. We're going to look at those things. We're going to look at what faithfulness 
to be a blessing in our speech looks like. We're going to look at an example of that. And, and then we're going to get some principles. We're going to look at three principles about our speech and how to be a blessing versus uh, one of those toxic people who uh, are to be avoided and shunned because they contribute nothing to our lives. They only take from our lives. I realize that's strong language, but I wonder if you, if you just think about the idea of fruit. Fruit, good fruit, is nourishing. You can take it in, and your body can absorb it. Your body can break it down, digest it, and receive energy and power and even healing from it. What happens when you eat stuff that is toxic? You get sick. It's pretty straightforward. But uh, nevertheless, uh, if you... I mean, I can contrast this, I guess. Last night, we went out to dinner. I was up in Reading for a concert. We went to In-N-Out. Um, I love In-N-Out. But wow, uh, about an hour and a half after a double-double, <laughs> things, things don't necessarily go so well. Uh, and, and so then I, I, I thought it would be a wonderful idea to follow up the double-double with Cold Stone ice cream. And so I got uh, dark chocolate ice cream with peppermint patties rolled into them. And... Um, well, you want to talk about a crash about an hour or so later. It just it wasn't, it wasn't quite the right thing. Why? Because the nourishment isn't that good. I mean, there might be some there. I'm sure there is. I didn't die. And you won't die from eating in and out. Well, I don't know. Maybe you will. Uh, but nevertheless, what you take from that when your body is breaking it down and wanting to put it to use is a kind of false energy that poisons you later, or at least it can. Our speech is food or it is poison. So let's look at this. Um, let's look at the impact of these different kinds of things. A very simple verse of chapter 15, verse 4. The first line describes a gentle or healing tongue. Might be another translation of this. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. So a, a, a gentle person is someone who is the opposite of rough, abrasive, much less abusive, but you, you are handled with care. You are treated well by a gentle person. We, we've got this very old-fashioned word, gentleman. Uh, a gentleman is a man, or maybe I should say was, in previous decades, a man who in spite of being a man and being rough and doing all sorts of rough things, we might think of Gary Cooper springs to mind, nevertheless, is a gentleman. 
that roughness is brought under control. And what comes out is um, appropriate, it is right, it is suited, and it treats people well. So something like politeness gets rolled into this, civility gets rolled into this. If something needs to be done that is a corrective or a rebuke or bringing something back to heal, that's going to be done not with uh, uh, the most power and, and volume and anger possible. It's going to be done with the least possible. So gentleness is about treating people with respect, with uh, a light touch. All of these things are involved in gentleness. Now, you can be firm and gentle. Those things are not a contradiction. You want your doctor, if he has to give you a shot, you, you don't want him to be weak about getting that sh- giving that shot. That's just going to take longer, and it's going to hurt worse. You want him to be firm. You want to get that shot in there, get it done, and be on your way. So gentleness and firmness are not necessarily opposites. Gentleness and abusiveness are opposites. Gentleness and violence are opposites. This is what the verse says. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. So a gentle tongue is a tongue that isn't going to reach for the most inflammatory word to get your point across. The gentle tongue reaches for the clearest, firmest, and, and um, softest word that will get the point across. And so it's describing here a, a kind of approach to relationships and life and problems, challenges, conflicts, that instead of ratcheting up the confrontation, raising the temperature, going harder and hotter against another person, lowers the temperature, gets more gentle and uh, seeks healing. Healing is another good translation of this. The whole goal of a gentle tongue is to restore. The, the goal of a gentle tongue is to lift up someone's spirit rather than uh, crush it, smash it down. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that Solomon says a gentle tongue is a tree of life. When we read that phrase, that ought to set off a little alarm bell that says, there's something in the Bible somewhere about a tree. Because there's, there's some important tree somewhere in the Bible called the tree of life. You know where that is? Genesis. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the garden that God created to be the source of nourishment, beauty, safety, abundance for human beings. And so at the center of this garden is this tree of healing and life. And uh, it's, it's a tree 
that has fruit of renewal. When you eat of it, you receive it, the the sense of this is whatever uh, ailed you in the Garden of Eden, whatever bumps, bruises you may have gotten in the course of your work, those things are healed. If you're tired, your energy is restored. And uh, so the Tree of Life is this fantastic symbol in the Bible. It's a symbol of eternal fellowship with God and eternal life. You know, the tree of life doesn't end in Genesis 3 when we get kicked out of the garden. The tree of life comes back in the Bible. comes back at the end of Revelation. And at the end of Revelation, the tree of life is at the center of the new Jerusalem. The whole city is around the tree of life. It's back and it brings healing to the nations. Everyone eats of it again. You have access to it again. And the reason we do not die is because we have access to this restoring, healing food from this tree. So Solomon says here, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. You realize how powerful that is? What Solomon is saying here is, The gentle, wise speech has the ability to take us, in a sense, back to Eden. Or, in a sense, forward to the kingdom of God. That's powerful. It means that when you encounter someone who has truth and gentleness in their speech... So they know what is right, and they also have regard for you, your dignity, and your well-being. When, when you have both of those things, you are a source of nourishment for the people around you that is like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and in the future in the kingdom of God. It's a powerful thing. I don't know about you, but I crave that. I not only want that as a person receiving speech from other people, I not only want to be renewed by what other people say to me, I want to be the source of that. I want us to be the community that is known for this. That is where we have this wonderful symbol of the local historic oak tree that, that is our logo, if that were a symbol of our character, that you have this rugged, living, old thing that is growing and constantly renewing and a source of life for everyone who comes here, a source of renewal and healing. It's a powerful thing. It is really, uh, or ought to be, at the heart of our aspirations. So let's try to fill in this more specifically. Look with me at some verses just in the immediate context of chapter 15. Verse 7. What might it mean to have a gentle tongue that is a tree of life? Verse 7 says, The lips of the wise spread knowledge. Notice the contrast in that verse. Not so the hearts 
of fools. You would expect the verse to say, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, the lips of the wicked spread something else. But it doesn't say that. It says, the hearts of the wicked are different. The hearts of fools do not spread knowledge. What is this verse saying? It's saying here that the lips of the wise are spreading knowledge because their hearts treasure it. They have the fear of the Lord in their hearts. They have the fear of their guides and trust in their own teachers that they have received a stewardship of a godly heritage. And so that is what uh, has captured their hearts. And out of that treasure in their heart, the mouth speaks, as the Lord Jesus would say. And so what comes out? Knowledge. Useful stuff. The revealing of secret things that you would like to know. And the wise, the godly of heart, reveal those things. I have an example of this uh, in my own life. My violin teacher uh, in college was a man named Dan Rouslin. And uh, he showed me a whole new way to look at the violin because he had knowledge of how to play it. And so he gave me all kinds of things that helped me uh, get rid of tension when I played and helped me uh, produce a clearer, uh, richer sound, helped me, helped me play more fluidly instead of getting all jammed up in tension and anxiety. So he had this knowledge, plus he had the gentleness to impart that knowledge, and it changed the way I played the violin. You probably have someone in your life like that, where there's, there's knowledge in there, and they help you with something you're working on. There's something you're trying to figure out, and they help you with that with their knowledge, and their gentleness helps get that knowledge across. It's a tree of life in your, in, in your experience. It's nourishing, and it helps you grow. Let's look at another example of this. Uh, verse 23 in the same chapter. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, how good it is. This is an interesting proverb um, because the form is different from uh, many other Proverbs. We just looked at a proverb where the two lines contrast each other. There are lots of other Proverbs and, and Psalms where the two lines are comparing, not contrasting. They're synonymous, the two things in the two lines. In this case, the second line extends the thought in the first line. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, how good it is. It just takes the idea and extends it a little bit further. This proverb is saying that there's something about the timing and appropriateness of what you say that is wise and godly. There's, you know, our moms used to tell us, or maybe our grandmothers used to tell us, there's a time and a place for everything. Usually they were saying, and this isn't it. <laughs> Nowadays we say, use your inside voice uh, if, if it's inappropriate. 
um, or getting a little loud. There's something about aptness that fits the situation, the relationship, and the need at the moment. And Solomon says, when a man sees that he is given an apt word, an apt answer, it's a joy to him. I got it right. I said it at the right moment. I chose the right setting. And it went in. It was received. And it lit up this person's eyes. And they left that conversation stronger. That's a joy. Because that's what we call fellowship. That's where you're united in that relationship together and you walk away from a conversation more unified than you were when you walked into it. That's some of the fruit of an apt answer. It's, it's in the second line described as a word in season. So I got a little irritated on Friday because it, it got kind of warm again. We had this wonderful uh, fall weather and we had some rain even. And then it's like the heat was, was coming back on Friday. It annoyed me because California has no idea what the four seasons are. It is constantly messing them up. Uh, well, some people have no concept that there is a time for a certain word. And there is a time to zip it and not say those things. There is a setting for certain things. And there is a setting for other things. Um, we live in a society where this guy enables us to communicate instantly for well or ill. You can send out whatever you want to say to all of your friends on Facebook. You can text someone an individual message. You, you can message them. Have you ever done this where you're, you're texting along and you hit send and then you realize spell check changed what I wrote and this is not good. <laughs> you ever done this? Uh, I always proofread my texts because I don't want that to happen. Have you ever written an email that infuriated someone and that was the opposite of what you intended? Have you ever received an email that absolutely infuriated you and it was not meant to do that. It was meant in a completely different way when you checked it out later. This happens all the time because... We communicate too fast through the wrong media. Listen, if you need to bring up a conflict, a disagreement, or, or you know, deliver a rebuke to someone, setting and medium are of first importance. Why? Because an apt answer is a joy. An inapt answer is a, a real bummer. Um, I do not, as a matter of policy, write to people about disagreements. 
I just don't do it. The, uh, the only exception to that is when there, there have been a series of basically the same disagreement over and over again, and we're not making progress, and it's my role as a pastor to say, it's time to be done with this now, and uh, we need to stop having this argument, or you need to, you need to desist from bothering this person with your point of view on this. There are times when I will write that down, but the reason is there is a sternness, a distance, and a coldness to writing these things. And so uh, I just don't do it. Um, I'll set up a meeting and do it face-to-face because it is very hard to communicate those kinds of things in writing without being overly cold, remote, and stern. And it seems like the more you try to make it warm and friendly, but it's really a rebuke, the worse it gets. So um, I would encourage you to take this thing or the computer and just say, you know, I just don't think this is the right medium, this isn't the right setting to raise this issue with this person. Because I just know the impact on them is going to be far more negative than I want it to be. Um, So another example of gentleness, considering the medium, the setting you're using to say things. Verse 26, one more uh, example of this. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but... Gracious thoughts are pure. Is that what your Bible says? No. You got this this pairing again of the heart or thoughts and words. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. What does that mean? What you say flows out of what's going on in your heart. And the the words that are gracious are flowing out of a heart that is well-intentioned toward the person you're talking to, and so the grace comes through. Um, Ungracious words, they are mixed with, you know, some kind of other agenda. We'll talk about this more in a minute. That isn't necessarily for your good. It's just This is just what I wanted to say to you to get this off my chest, that kind of thing. So um, what do we mean by a gentle tongue back in verse 4? We mean words that give out actual food, real knowledge that is helpful to people in the right setting at the right time and that come from a heart that is really concerned for the good of that person. This is all very basic, no rocket science here, but... Solomon is saying, if you do that, if you learn that, you are taking the person you're talking to back to Eden. You have the ability to do that. I'll go even further. As the people of God, the body of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God with the mind of Christ... We have more than the ability. We have tremendous power to speak life 
into other people and revitalize them through gentleness. Now, the opposite is perverseness. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A couple of things uh, kind of intrigue me about that second line. First of all, perverseness means it's twisted. It's malformed. What was straight has been made crooked. What was a useful rope has, is now all tied up in knots. And so our words can get twisted, perverse. How does that happen? We'll talk about that more in a minute. But there's something about this mixture of the words mean one thing, but the way I am saying it and the agenda behind it is twisting them. And it means something else. And what, uh, what Solomon is saying here is that kind of twisted nature of what we say, when you put that twist in there, it breaks the spirit. The person listening to it can't straighten out what you're saying. They can't receive it. All they know is something is coming at them and it's not good they don't like it. They need to correct something. They need to change something, but they can't, can't figure out what it is. And so this is um, a, a line really describing what we would call manipulation. So let's talk about this. When your spirit is broken by someone, it's because the way they're communicating with you, not just what they are saying, but the whole way they are communicating with you is from a hidden kind of agenda, some, something that they are working for and trying to achieve that you can't figure out, you don't have access to, they are not telling you what it is, but they're here talking to you and trying to get you to do something, be a certain way, act a certain way. So we call this manipulative behavior, we call it controlling behavior, because you're trying to get people to do something, and you're using words as the levers to try and control them. It breaks the spirit. Here's another thing that interests me about this verse. Perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Well... In what? It has to be something in the previous line. The gentle or healing tongue is a tree of life. But twistedness, perverseness, in it, in that tongue or in a gentle tongue. Think about that. Sometimes we deal with people who come across very sweet and nice. And they're so soothing. Everything they say just makes you feel great. Until you discover there's some agenda back behind that niceness. And when you discover that, what happens to your level of trust? Craters. As well it should, 
because niceness on the surface with some other kind of agenda back behind it, even if the person thinks it's a good one, is a lie. Uh, Solomon elsewhere gives us the image of the, the glaze on pottery. Nice and shiny on the outside, but on the inside, un, once you get underneath all of that flattery and nice talk, inside there's a desire to harm you. And so in other contexts, Solomon says, watch out for that uh, when someone is, is flattering you in that way. So there's something in this proverb that is saying that gentle tongue can come across real nice for a while, but if there's something twisted in there, if there's something deceptive or perverse in it, if, to put it bluntly, you are being played so that you will do what the person wants you to do, it breaks your spirit. Why? Because it's a betrayal of trust. And this is one of the... Okay, so now I go from preaching to meddling. Um, One of the reasons why people today are so angry at churches and at Christian people is because of this verse. It's because it's all kind of sweetness and, and light and and it's not even real sweetness, it's kind of saccharine sweetness that leaves a yuck aftertaste on it. It's all that on the outside. It's all Ned Flanders. <laughs> but the the what people feel is the agenda behind it that twists that niceness into a play to control you. And they try to get you to do what you are expected to do, what you should do, what we think is right for you, and so we're going to be really nice to you in an attempt to make you go along with what we think you need to do. So I'll go out on a limb here and say that one of the reasons for the intense hostility toward churches, is that uh, we have specialized in being nice at the expense of being faithful. We care more about what we want people to do than we do about the dignity and well-being of the people we're talking to. And so this might look like anything from a huckster who's just trying to get conversion numbers. So you're emotionally manipulated to go forward in an altar call and they keep playing that song over and over again until somebody comes forward so you decide, it may as well be me. And then after you're done with that, you say, well, I came here wanting to know God, but I feel like I just got used. And this is a terrible feeling. Um, Now, I'm saying this because we're all here and it's just us chickens. Uh, And, I mean, we can rail against how false the world is 
and how manipulative the world is. But we, we might as well, if we want to be wise people, if we really want to get this, we may as well talk about some of the things that we have done that are costing us dearly in, in terms of our witness to our very gracious Savior who does not treat us deceptively, but who deals with us in a faithful way. Um, what are some... Um, uh, one more observation about this line. By the way, if you're worried about the length of this sermon... Uh, it will speed up. <laughs> I, I realize I'm only going through these two points, but we're getting traction here, and it, it's going to speed up. And, uh, I, I planned on this, so uh, fear not. Uh, so, last observation on this line. Whose spirit does it break? We've been talking about the fact that twisted, manipulative speech breaks the spirit of the person who has to hear it. You know what? He doesn't specify that. And what Solomon doesn't say is just as important as what he does say. He says, perverseness in that tongue, twisted speech, breaks the spirit, certainly of the hearer, but also of the speaker. It applies equally. Every single time we do this to each other, to our children, to our spouses, every time we are taking our hearts and baking them harder in the oven of selfishness. And we're just getting harder and harder and harder. And eventually that breaks. So Solomon doesn't say whether it's just the hearer here. He leaves it open-ended, and I have found that when he leaves it open-ended, He means his statement, his observation to apply to many different uh, people in in the the same kind of situation. Turn with me to Proverbs 20 and verse 20. Let's look at some other statements he makes about the curse of manipulative or false unfaithful behavior when your tongue breaks people. Proverbs 20, 20. This is really corny, but I'm a preacher, so I have to use it. You want 2020 vision? That's so cheesy, I can't even finish it. But you'll remember it, won't you? That's why they do that stuff. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. See what that's saying? You go back to those who were your guides who gave you life and you curse them. You pronounce, I want evil to happen to you. That's what a curse is. Then when you're in darkness and you can't see your hand in front of your face, Solomon says his lamp goes out at precisely that moment. When you most need light, you won't have it. So this is the speaker out of the twistedness of his heart, wishing maliciously against his father or his mother. 
his own spirit or her own spirit is going to break at the moment they need their spirit and their, their health. They need light the most. Their lamp will be put out. Go to Proverbs chapter 22. Turn over the page to verse 10. I love this. This is another kind of twisted speaker. Someone who curses someone is twisted because they, they have malice in their heart against the person they're cursing. Like in Proverbs 20, 20. Here we're talking about another kind of perverted speaker, and that's a scoffer. Verse 10 says, Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out. And quarreling and abuse will cease. This is saying, if you see somebody in your midst who does nothing but scoff at everything around them, all they do is mock, tear down, um, destroy, show their own superiority over everything around them, and especially those in authority over them, that's a scoffer, biblically. Solomon says, drive that guy out. What does that mean? It means forcibly push him out of the community. Get rid of him. And if you do that, something's going to happen. Strife will go out with him. These are strong words. Very strong. The internet doesn't hold up real well under this verse. You know what this is saying? Far from driving scoffing out, we're carrying it around. And we're feeding ourselves on it. Is it any wonder that we are all feeling the strife and the heat of conflict and contention escalating day by day, week by week, month by month? Of course it does. Solomon says, you've got to get rid of the scoffing, then the strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. Why? Because it's twisted. What's coming out of the scoffer and all of that mockery and superiority, what's coming out of him is twisted, perverted speech. It's breaking everyone's spirit. So drive him out. Um, friends, I have done this. I mean, I don't do this publicly, but I have said to people, you need to find another church today. Don't come back. Because of the attitude that they bring to what I want to be a very trusting environment here. And so if that kind of attitude is... is coming in and I, I'm working with it trying to lower the temperature and saying hey you know dial it back a few you've got it turned up to 11 turn it down you know let's we, we like having you here but you know we, we've got to be respectful of people if I don't get any response to that it's curtains and um, it's pretty rare but just know this 
this is really important to me because you cannot have a safe, trusting community where the scoffer is controlling the dialogue. This can't be done. So, um, this is another kind of twisted speech. Drop down to verses 24 and 25. More strong words about this. Chapter 22 of Proverbs, verses 24 and 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Where is that anger coming from? Well, the, the words he is using might have an element of truth in them or the words that she is speaking might be defensible as words. But the spirit behind them is so full of heat and malice and, and rage that it has twisted the meaning of those words beyond recognition. And all you're getting is the blast of heat from this personality. And Solomon is saying, don't go with that person. Let's leave him behind. Um, so a couple of directions on the basis of this. When Solomon says, back in chapter 15, perverseness in the tongue breaks the spirit, he is not kidding. And he is also, as a director, as a guide of Israel, as king, he is willing to say to his people, drive it out, get rid of it. Because it will break your spirit if you hang around with this. And um, in this sense, this is a call to two different kinds of repentance for us. One kind of repentance is the, the kind that says, you know, I have rationalized listening to this person and hanging around them, and I have excused their behavior and the way they talk. But the fact is, I'm becoming just like them, and the things that are twisting them are twisting me as well. And I need to put some distance there. So there's that kind of repentance. And this is not judging that person in the sense that you're saying, that person's lost forever and the Lord will take out his wrath. We don't know that. We don't know that they're lost and we don't know that the Lord's going to be wrathful to them. We hope that the Lord will bring them to their senses and they will change. But honestly, we've got to stop living our lives as if discernment is judgment. It's not. We are called to discern the people that we give our time and our emotional energy to. And we are called to make decisions based on that. If it's toxic, Solomon is saying, make a decision. Leave that relationship behind and, and leave the toxicity of it behind. But there's another kind of repentance and as, as your pastor, I, I need to bring this out. This may be you. You may be the toxic, angry person whose agenda is twisting every word you say. If that is the case, then the way you really need 
to take Solomon's warnings here is turn, turn now. Do whatever it takes to leave behind the toxicity of your speech. Because chances are you can look back over a life of relationships and you can see how you, you have seen those relationships break up in a destructive way, one after another after another. So leave it behind. Solomon gives no quarter on this issue. You cannot, in good conscience, claim to be a follower of Christ and a toxic, twisted speaker at the same time. It does not work. So having said all of that, let's look quickly at a a picture of faithfulness, and it is the example of Jonathan with his father in 1 Samuel 19. You know the story is Saul, the king, wants to kill David. And Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan loves the Lord, fears the Lord, and he loves David. So, in our ethic today, it's very simple. Jonathan, just tell your dad off and uh, be unfaithful to him. It's no skin off your nose. He deserves whatever he gets. And choose David's side. Just side with him and, and cut off uh, your father. Notice the way Jonathan conducts himself here in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, first seven verses. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Saul's losing his mind. He is inciting his court to commit murder. This is criminal behavior. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Faithfulness owes that to his friend, right? Save your life. Go out, hide yourself. I will intercede, he says. I will talk to my father, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. So what is this, a conspiracy against Saul now on the part of Jonathan and David? Watch this. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said, Let not the king sin against his servant David. A couple of things here. This is firm. Don't sin, father, king. Don't commit this trespass. Now that's very firm. But notice the gentleness here. He doesn't say, you crazy old man, you don't even know what you're doing anymore. Okay, so we just raised the temperature there, right? Even though, you can make a strong case, that is perfectly true. That Saul is a crazy old man and a very dangerous one. Nevertheless, he does not do that. Let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. 
Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? You know where they are? Are they in the throne room with lots of people listening here? No. They are out in a field alone. Setting, firmness, gentleness. This is faithful. Jonathan tells him exactly what his agenda is. I am out to save David's life. And I'll tell you why. And look at the result. This isn't uh, always going to be the result with Saul, but it is in this case. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And so David report, uh, Jonathan reports back to David, brings them back together again. This is an example of faithful gentleness in very tough circumstances. Three principles that we desperately need in our speech. One, words are not levers on a machine. If you are using words to control people, this is where you need to start. You need to start by releasing your control or your attempt to control the people around you. Stop pushing these buttons. It's no good. There's no value in it. And um, this is because words were not meant for this purpose. Who controls the people around us? God does. If we trust God, then we can speak gently and truly Release control and let God do his thing. So words are not given to us to control other people. That twists our words and makes us manipulative. Second, if we trust God to lead the people around us, that means we can say what we have to say with a measure of calm and peace. And this is very important. We should seek to speak to each other out of hearts that are not agitated, but that are calm and resting in the providence and sovereignty of God that he can and does lead the people around us. Listen, every single time I have done the work to calm my heart before addressing a problem with a person, I see God in action. Every single time I do not do that work, I see the failure of my attempt to control someone with anger, manipulation, whatever it may be. Whatever my favored tool in that instance is going to be, when I am not calm, I reach for the toolbox of manipulation. And God is saying to us this morning, you can be a tree of life. You can take someone back to Eden today by trusting God and speaking to them out of that measure of calm. Finally, Solomon is calling us to candor. Candor is openness, frankness saying what's on your mind and why. Manipulation is the opposite of candor, 
Manipulation holds words up like a mask. And the real agenda is behind the words. The real agenda is behind the mask. And what Solomon is saying is, take the mask off. Make your words straight. Untwist them. So that when you speak to people, they can believe you. They can trust you. Otherwise... Every word that we say to each other out of a desire to control and manipulate is deceit and betrayal of trust, and we will never get anywhere doing that to each other. This, as a matter of parenting, is absolutely of first importance. I would say that manipulation in parenting is... The number one thing I talk with people about when they are bringing hurts into my office. Number one. It's not even close. So this is a call, again, to think very carefully about the agenda behind what we say and the words with which we express ourselves. Here are a couple of questions. Uh, to help you evaluate that. And these are questions to ponder and kind of watch yourself, maybe even make a note on, on your behavior. Ask the Spirit of God to search this out. First of all, what are you trying to control in the people around you? When you get angry, when you go to that manipulative toolbox and you get out those tools, what are you trying to get people to do? Once you identify that, then you can kind of work backwards and say, you know, maybe I can trust God that they will do the right thing in this situation and I can back out of this and just speak straight instead of trying to manipulate. Or maybe the thing I want everyone to do is purely selfish and all about me and I need to drop this whole thing. So identify what it is that you're trying to control and I'm not really allowing much room for... Uh, oh, I'm not trying to control anything. Okay, well, have a nice day. Come again. Uh, But uh, the Spirit of God can show us those areas where we're trying to control. The second question is like it. Um, How do your words hide your meaning? I'm after this outcome but I'm saying this. I want you to start to notice the disparity between what you want and what you say. That tells the story of whether your words are twisted, straight, whatever it may be. So two questions, maybe not to answer right away, but certainly to ponder. Okay. Is there, thank you, is there a right way to answer a manipulator? Thank you. Wow, we're getting flooded here. Okay, I have my work cut out for me. Is there a right way to answer a manipulator or do you just walk away? Um, The right way to answer a manipulator in your life 
is to ask questions that give them a chance to drop their tool and simply say straight what is on their minds. You give them that opportunity. Um, And um, I have found that most manipulation uh, in people's lives and in my own life is coming out of fear. So if I lower uh, the level of fear that people have, then I find the manipulation kind of evaporates and we can just talk straight. So instead of getting angry and trying to make them fearful, which, by the way, is another control thing, right? Instead of doing that, lower the temperature, help them not be afraid, maybe they will talk straight. And and you can see it happen. They will sigh, and their face will change, their, their eyes will change, their tone of voice will change and they will start to reveal what they're really thinking. And so you want to get there, and the way to do that is, is simply to lower the level of fear. If that person will not drop the deception, there is very little that you can do. Uh, maybe the Lord can work in their life. I hope and trust that He will. But there is a time to say, this conversation's over because it's toxic and I'm not going to participate any longer. Um, you see a lot of pastors that are so angry uh, at society and circumstances. Um, their conduct is uh, belligerent. Um, basically, is this right pastoral behavior? Um, it depends. Jesus got angry. Uh, at all kinds of people. Um, however, with um, tax collectors and sinners and all sorts of people who were on the outside, he was known for gentleness and meekness and they loved him. That is not true of us today. Insiders love us. Outsiders, not so much. So in this key way, we are not matching the character of Christ here. And I do think it is very important to uh, drop the anger uh, that is, is so common um, in, in denouncing what happens in our society. Um, I do not trust words of any kind, and so I run as fast as and as far as I can. How can I trust gentle words? Oh, I think a lot of people are here. A lot of people saying, I I don't trust any words. How can I even, if they're gentle, they almost freak me out even worse. Um, Here's the only answer I know. We need to build more and more trust in a safe community incrementally over time so that we can come to trust more and more. 
but just to give some kind of blanket gimmicky prayer and say, hey, pray this and it'll solve your problem. No. Work, faith in God and deepening that faith incrementally with other people over time will do this job. Uh, but there are no short answers for this. Uh, but this is candor, by the way. Open, straight communication. This is what the problem is. And this is, uh, this is where I'm at with this issue. Um, okay. Um, what should you do when uh, someone who is close to you is constantly speaking abusive words to you or speaking with brash tone? Um, sometimes uh, you may need to go to an authority figure in your life and say, this is happening to me. What do I do? Get some direction with, on that issue. Um, you may need someone to walk you through this. Um, and uh, so that might be an important first step. Um, but I find that, uh, again, lowering the the temperature uh, lowering the volume yourself. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, and saying, "I want to hear what you're saying, and I want to do what you're talking about here, but I can't hear you for the the brashness, the the abusiveness of what you're saying, and the way you're saying it. See, that's straight. It's candid." says what the issue is, and it, it uh, opens up your whole heart. So um, just a straight-up, respectful, soft, but firm way of saying that, and maybe getting help with, uh, from authority figures. Uh, how can we cast out the scoffing and scorning in this election? <laughs> it had to come up. <laughs> uh, it is so painful to be subjected to this uh, abusive uh, behavior and yet it's unavoidable as a civic duty. What do we do? Um, our most important job right now is not to be complicit in this. To make our decisions as we feel called to make our decisions but to participate in the wrangling at this point is pouring fuel on the fire. And so I, I think the way we um, use social media uh, is important in this. Let's be the people who are saying, this is difficult for everybody. We're all in a bind here, no matter which angle politically you're coming at this from. Ain't nobody happy in the country right now. So, let's just talk. As opposed to kind of political activist kind of tone, I think that's a very important decision uh, that we can make. Um, uh, these look like all of the questions here. Uh, oh, one more. Um, thank you for hanging in here uh, on, as, as we're going long. How do we guard ourselves against toxic people if we need to interact with them on a regular basis for work? Very difficult issue. 
because you can't get out unless you want to find another place to work, and that's a little tricky to do these days. Um, rule number one. This is true. It works. I swear by it. Do not attack them. Do not go behind their back and tell stories. If they are going to do aggressive things against you, then your job is to manage your own relationships faithfully. And if you do that, then um, the person who might start attacking you They have to get worse and worse and hotter and hotter. Eventually, they will expose themselves. I have seen this over and over and over again. Um, And I would commend it to you. I think it is a godly way to defend yourself against uh, a toxic person. Manage your own speech and your own relationships in a godly way and do not attack. They are waiting for you. That's why they're toxic. And if you attack, you will become like them. Uh, It's unavoidable. And so, uh, great question there. I wish I could say more about that, but uh, there are still some weeks to go here. So I'm going to bear all of this in mind as we proceed in this study.